Recorded live at the Hawk's Nest on the summit in Pataskala, Ohio. This is Garage Days. Underproduced and over the top, I'm your host, Arch Madness. On this episode, Anthony Quarter of Tora Tora is going to be calling the garage uh, here in just a few. They've got some new music that we're going to be discussing. Uh, Tora Tora came onto the scene with their debut album, Surprise Attack, back in 1989. Their big hit was Walking Shoes, of course. But they had a, a handful of other singles, and a couple of those got played a ton on MTV, especially during Headbangers Ball. And I was a big fan of that second record, too, Wild America. Uh, that came out in 1992, uh, but the guard was kind of changing in music during that time. Uh, Amnesia was the single off that record, but it was strong all the way through. The title track, As Time Goes By, which was my favorite, uh, Faith Healer. There were some great songs on that record. So they're all back together, all four original members. Uh, they've done some festivals, cruises, uh, stuff like that, released a few albums in that time. Uh, the first or second time they got back together was in 2008, at Rocklahoma, I want to say. Their last studio album was 2019's Bastards of Beale. If you don't have that one, check it out. Son of a Prodigal Son is an absolute jam, but I'll I'll talk all things Tora Tora with Anthony, and that includes the new single that's coming out. And in fact, here's Anthony calling right now. Tora Tora has a, a new single, Trip the Light Fantastic. Uh, at the time of this podcast release, it's going to be available on all uh, digital outlets and and calling in right now he's in transit we're going to find out where he's at from tora tora the one and only anthony quarter hey anthony hey how's it going man thank you so much for having me on i'm so excited to talk to you we're, we're cool. thrilled to have a new music out and uh i just appreciate you giving me a platform to talk to everybody absolutely man now this is the way that i envision this interview anthony first part is going to be the tora tora story which i think is one of the coolest ones in rock. I mean, high school, the headbangers ball, the whole warehouse thing is so badass. And then I'm going to kind of fanboy out with some of my questions. And then we're going to hit the listeners and then the Torah tribe out there listening uh, to the uh, the new music, the tour this fall. So is that kind of cool if that's the way we lay this out? Absolutely. That sounds great, man. That's, that's rock and roll. Cool, man. Four Memphis dudes, two different high schools. How did you guys meet? <laughs> Man, it was just crazy getting started, man. Um, you know, Patrick and I, the bass player, Patrick Francis and I went to uh, high school together. And then Keith Douglas and John Patterson, the guitarist and the drums, they went to another school in Memphis. And um, they were all friends. You know, Patrick and, and Keith, the bass and guitar guys, they have been friends since they were about eight years old. So they've known each other their whole life. And... Uh, they grew up listening to music and going to concerts and all kind of stuff. And um, they had kind of uh, had, you know, had jammed a little bit together before I kind of came along. Um, and I just happened to, to run into Patrick. He, he kind of approached me. I was kind of singing in a little neighborhood band. And he came up to me and asked me if I wanted to audition uh, for the Tora Tora uh, opportunity. And at the time, we didn't even have a name or anything they had they had kind of just got together started jamming and, and uh of course i was like you know totally nervous and, and excited to do it and uh man it was just so crazy I, I they were they seemed like more advanced you know i was kind of singing like i said in kind of a you know a talent and, and they played some gigs they had been in the studio recorded some music so i felt like they were you know, successful, right, they kind of right, up right. And, doing things. And, I, and I didn't realize at the time that, you know, what, 
what kind of scope that was, but I went over and, uh, and I took my acoustic. I was going to do like, you know, sing, sing with my uh, guitar and do kind of a singer songwriter kind of thing and try to impress them with my singing. And I walked in and uh, I strummed about halfway through a song and they went, man, that's awesome. But can you sing some Aerosmith or Cheap Trick? Or some <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they kind of cut me off. And, but we just, we just kind of clicked, man. The first time I got around them, um, they were just awesome, man. All, all three of the guys, man, just individually were just really cool. And we kind of vibed out, you know, I kind of just said, Hey, I can probably fake it through a couple of these songs. Let's just see how it feels when we start playing together. And, uh, we just kind of felt, felt something right away. We just said, man, there's something kind of cool about the four of us together. And, and, uh, we had this really good friend, this girl named Kelly coffee that we went to high school with. And, she actually helped us come up with the name to our tour. She had like a whole list of names and we were kind of going through all these ideas where we had planned a gig and we said, man, we really need to come up with something. And, you know, there was kind of like the old standby joke that everybody always has where we say like three beer or something like that. Right. I've heard, I've said that on the air too, that your, your guys, when I, if I play walk and shoes or something, I always say, and you know, their original name was free beer. I always say that. (laughs) Well, we just, we're trying to think of anyway, we're going to play a little place uh, near the University of Memphis Public College Inn. And uh, I think we played for like a keg of beer or something. And we just want to get our friends to come and hang out with us or see if we can get through it. But um, but anyway, we were talking to her and we were big fans of Van Halen and stuff. And there we, we go. Saw that day and we said, hey, that's kind of cool. And so for your listeners, you know, that was off the Women and Children First record. It was kind of like a little intro and. So we just thought about it. We said, hey, man, maybe that, you know, let's try it. And uh, the first couple of gigs that we did, uh, all of our friends from those high schools would show up at our gigs, man. So we kind of had like a, a built-in following. We didn't realize it at the time how important that was, but they would all kind of come out. And uh, before we started playing, they kind of did like a <laughs> like an Animal House chant of <laughs> You know, it kind of got going. And we said, hey, man, this actually might catch on and okay so we just kind of used it and it kind of with and uh you know here we are you know 30 some years later and we're still cruising around uh getting those chance stuff it's awesome so the the warehouse and that's that's where all this w- was taking place and it was such an organic thing that's why i think that's one of the coolest parts to your story is how you guys did this how you got signed it wasn't you know it, it you didn't have to go out to la i, I mean la kind of came out to you guys right it, man it was really crazy we were kind of feeling from the sunset strip memphis kind of had like a strip like that it was it was bill street down in memphis and there was a lot of bands uh, a lot of local bands that were doing original music and it was kind of due to there was a local disc jockey. Um, his name was Malcolm Riker, and he had a local. People were going to go and recording and trying to hey, get your song. Hey, hey, Anthony, He's Anthony, Anthony. I'm sorry to cut you off. It is, yeah. it's, it's. Uh, it, I lost like about 15 seconds of you there. Oh yeah, hang on one second. Let me take these uh, headphones out. Hang on one second, okay? You got it. Did that look better for you? Oh yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, get, to the, uh, get to the uh, get to the uh, the get to the get to the DJ was really cool part because 
<laughs> and how he helped you guys out. Because, uh, you know, we take a beating sometimes in radio, and I, and, I, and I like to hear stories like this, Anthony. No, it was awesome. Um, the guy's name was Malcolm Riker, and he had a locals-only show. So a lot of the bands were like, you know, going in the studio. We were trying to, uh, you know, cut demos and stuff and try to get our stuff on the radio. And he was very supportive. And, and I, what I was talking about earlier was Bill Street. That was kind of one of the only places where you could play original music. There was only a handful of places around. And so we got to thinking about it, and we were just like, man, we sh- we need to play and, and do our music. And we had this rehearsal place that was uh, the guitar player's father was uh, in the glue business, and he stored these 55-gallon drums in this warehouse. And so we just pushed all those <laughs> drums to one end while we were rehearsing there and ended up building a stage on them putting a PA in there and we kind of created our own little club. And so we had a place where all the underage kids had a place to go to see bands play and hear original music. A lot of the places on Bill Street were, you know, 21 and up and stuff like that. So we kind of were providing a service, man. We didn't know it at the time, but we were kind of little entrepreneurs, man. We yeah. Spot. And uh, so, man, we hired uh, some local football players from uh from Ole Miss, they worked the door. We gave them all the beer they could drink to, you know, <laughs> take care of everybody. If we had any kind of scuffles or anything, they were big enough they could just pick somebody up and put them outside. So they ran the door, and uh, and we played. And man, you know, we got some songs on the radio. And the cool thing about uh, the location of Memphis is it's kind of in the uh, in the southwest corner of Tennessee. So it kind of those radio stations carry over into Arkansas and Mississippi and Alabama and all that kind of stuff. So when he would talk about us and, and our band, people started hearing about it. And man, he actually mentioned our rehearsal place when we were throwing those parties. He would say something on air and you know say, "Don't miss the warehouse," you know. And they, we were like, <laughs> I mean, it was crazy, man. Yeah. And so people were showing up from all over the place. And uh, so we just kept building momentum and built up our, our following. And, man, we actually showcased in that in that rehearsal room, that, that old warehouse, man. It was really crazy. The record people came in. Uh, we had kind of built a, a little area on top of some offices in the front of the building uh, where our soundboard was. And so we kind of made that a little VIP area. It was up, up above everybody where you could kind of see the room. And so the record label people came in, and we had built a little bar. And they kind of stood around upstairs and just organically watched people come in. Man, they were rolling in. They had coolers. They had their lawn chairs. It was a scene, man. It was an absolute scene. It was like something out of a movie. I'm not kidding. It was so crazy. And they just kind of saw us, you know, in our own element, man. We just, I mean, it was totally DIY, man. I mean, we built some letters that said Torah Torah out of two by fours. (laughs) Right. And painted them and put glitter, and they kind of like, almost were like kiss lettering. But man, those things weighed you know, like a ton. I don't know how much they weighed, but if they would have fallen, we never <laughs> thought about liability or anything for our no, safety. Man. It's the late yeah, 80s. We, just, we had those things hanging up in the air and uh, over the stage, you know. And uh, but it looked really cool. I mean, it was like a we had kind of set it up and we got into it, and it was kind of where we hung out all the time. And, uh, man, it was just, it brings back so many great memories when I think about it, man. We, we spent so much time in there rehearsing and working and just, you know, putting in our. No, I get it. I just, I I think that's an incredible story how that all went down with the warehouse. And I it's that's just, that doesn't happen that way. I mean, for bands, aspiring bands, I mean, 
to hear that it story, was, it's just like, it's like a Rocky story, man. It was, man. And it was so funny. It was really close to the, the Coliseum, our, our hometown Coliseum. So we were strategic about our parties. We didn't throw them all the time. We would just throw them every once in a while. And a lot of times we do it when there was a concert. And so we would open the bay door right. of the warehouse. So the people that were kind of the overflow from the concerts and they would hear us in there jamming and stuff. So they would start coming in. And I mean, it ended up people were out in the parking lot throwing Frisbees. They had their ordering pizzas. That's their, great. You know, that's just killer, man. It's just, part. that's, I mean, it was, it was so fun. It was just, it was really great. And, and like I said, a lot of different people kind of came together. You know, there was a lot of, we were all young and, you know, there was kind of, it was kind of turfy, you know, kids from different areas and different schools and all that would come in. And at the beginning, they were kind of didn't get along with each other very like all the time. But they ended up a lot of them are friends now. Think way about back that. Then. Oh, yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, it was really fun. You know, they were just I think we were all always trying to promote, you know, that we just wanted everybody to get together and have a good time. And nobody was judgy about, you know, what group yeah. you were from or what area of the city or whatever. And we just kind of brought everybody together to have a party, man. So let's, let, let's talk about uh, the surprise attack album. And, and what I really want to talk about is ardent studios and where you guys recorded this and how special of a place this is. Uh, we've got a, uh, we've got a band here in Columbus. They're called South of Eden. Keep an eye on them. Greta, yeah. Greta and dirty uh -huh. honey. Couldn't hold these kids picks. Trust me. All right. Trust man. me. They are amazing. So they sign a deal. They go out to uh, Sunset Sound. And so I've had a couple of the guys here, you know, talking about that and just hearing the stories and hearing the just the history with what went out, it, it, what went on in, at Sunset Sound. Arden Studios, Anthony, that's just, I mean, Zeppelin, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Skinner. It's just amazing yeah. the list that, that play there. Talk about that, that experience uh, recording Surprise Attack. It was amazing. We we actually got introduced to the studio. We won a Battle of Bands competition in Memphis, and we won some recording time. Uh, was part of the prize, and so we went in, and we were working on a little EP at the time. And there was a guy named Paul Ebersole who was just happened to be the engineer that day at the studio. And we went in and we started working with him and talking to him. And you know, back then we actually thought he had like you know, had a career and everything was up and running. He was kind of young like us. When we, when we started thinking about it, you know, from a retrospect, he was kind of new too, but he just, for some reason, he saw something in us. We were recording songs like loves a bitch and phantom rider, the songs that ended up going on surprise attack. And we did them first with him uh, for the little EP. And just as he was working on it and stuff, he just said, Hey man, you know, I really want to talk to the owner of the studio about uh, possibly doing you know, a production deal with you guys. And we didn't know what that meant or anything. I mean, we were little kids and we were cutting grass for a living. Keith and I <laughs> were driving right, around right. in a pickup. Uh, my mom was a real estate agent in Memphis and we were cutting grass for her properties and stuff. And we were just talking. We were like, wouldn't it be crazy, man, if we like got in the studio and recorded some stuff and we got <laughs> signed, you know? Right. I mean, just this big blue sky dream and stuff, you know? And we actually got introduced to the owner, John Fry of Ardent, who had um, he had worked on some stuff like Big Star. I'm not sure if you're listening. Oh, yeah. Big well, Star. yes. Yeah, yeah. That's absolutely. But, uh, what a great, I mean, one of the iconic power pop bands, you know, when people yeah, talk about stuff his, like that. His uh, his mixing and everything still to this day, people, you know, it's, it has stood the test yeah, of time. Yeah. We kind of met him after he had 
been an engineer and all that, he was running Ardent. They kind of had a video production part to them. They had had some success. They had had uh, the, all the ZZ Top records, that uh, Afterburner and all that stuff had all come out of there. You know, Anthony, the light's kind of going off in my head. Was that the whole Alex Chilton thing, too? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. with the big stuff. You know what yeah. I mean? That's That makes sense because I, I see yeah. where he recorded there as well. So, yeah. And then bring he up was, Big Star. Yeah. He was really good friends John Fry, the owner, was really good friends with Big Star. That was mm-hmm. kind of his band. And, uh, you know, they were listening to the Beatles and all the, the English bands and stuff, and they were, you know, influenced by that. And the other thing that was really awesome about John Fry is he was really young when he started the the uh, studio, artist studio, started out in, like, his, uh, you know, his house and his grandmother's sewing room or something, and he built it into a place off National and then it moved over into Midtown on Madison Avenue. That's that's when we were part of it, kind of in the 80s. But the cool thing was when he first started and he moved to his first location, he bought the same recording equipment and stuff that Stax had. And so when they were booming and they were overflowing, the people from Stax went to work with the guys from Ardent. So a lot of those guys that were gotcha. recording all those great soul records, these were like – you know, experienced engineers and stuff were coming over there and teaching these young little kids that had some equipment stuff how to do these recording techniques, like how to get the drum sound and what amps they were using to get those sound. And so it was really cool. He was really always about educating yourself and technology. Uh, he was just a great mentor to us, man. He was kind of our introduction into the entertainment industry. So he was the guy that set us down around a little conference table, you know, and, and he drew a circle on the wall and put a little dot in the middle. And he goes, this is you and this is everybody else that's going to be participating in, you know, what you're doing. And, you know, and we <laughs> right. said, great, let's sign up. Can we play music? This you, is awesome. You didn't even listen. You weren't even listening. No. We were like, can we play music? We just, you know, we were so excited. But he was kind of like a, a father figure to our band, to be honest with you. He was, he wasn't a lot older than us, but he he had a lot of it more experience. And uh, so he kind of talked us through that whole process of doing the production deal. And he was the middleman between us and the the uh, the record uh, label offers. Which man, we we signed with them. And on a production deal, and then there was a bidding war. So we had about five or six labels that were interested in signing the band. So we had to sit down with him and kind wow. of just weigh up options. And man, I will tell you something. This is really funny that I, I was just thinking about is um, there was a guy named Brian Huttenhauer that worked for A&M Records, and he was a, like an up and coming uh, executive. And he had worked um, in their A&R department signing. Um, extreme and Soundgarden. he worked under another vice president guy like as a manager or something and they gotcha. had signed these two rock bands and so he came out to see our show and he was actually at the warehouse and man whenever we threw one of those parties when it was over we had to get in the car we took one of those those uh 50 55 gallon drums and put them in the back of a pickup we had to go clean up all the beer bottles and everything out of the parking lot because the truck started pulling in about 5 30 in the morning to all the other bays, you know, but he was one of the, he was one of the only guys that stuck around. He went and got in the back of the truck with us, you know, at, Holy shit. Uh, he, then he ends up signing Soundgarden and well, yeah, he was already helped. working with those guys. Right. And, but he told us, man, later, it was really funny. He said that he knew he wanted to sign us. Oh. He flew into Memphis and he said he got in his rental car. And when he turned the car on, our song was on the radio. Boom. Right. And he just said, man, I want to, I want to work with these guys. And so he came and found us, found the warehouse through uh, Ardent and them. And we, you know, we showcased for him. And 
we showcased a couple of times, once at the warehouse, and then we, we played down on Bill Street. There was a place called the, the New Daisy that was about a 900-seat venue down there. But anyway, all that happened because of Arden. And, uh, you know, every decision I ever made in my life geared towards the music industry, I talked to John Fry about it, man, all these years later until he passed away about five years ago. Man, it's man. just it just sounds like it was the, the perfect storm, Anthony. It you was. Know? You know? It was great. He was just such a great guy, and, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about him. We were really indebted to him because they just – they heard something, and they just said, hey, man, we're willing to take a chance and, and try to do something. You know, we all benefited. I mean, they, they participated in all that stuff, but I don't know. We just kind of had a unique relationship, and uh, I think about him a lot. I still talk about him a lot all the time. I, he That's was cool, man. Pro- no, right on. I totally – I get it, and yeah. – and if we could hit it real quick, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Wild America album and, and the growth from, from Surprise Attack to Wild America. I mean, as a fan, you could, you could just tell there was, I mean, just the first few, the first 30 seconds of, of Wild America, it just, it was like, oh my God, this has been kicked up a notch. You, yeah. you, could, you, you know what I mean? You could tell that it was just sonically and, and everything yeah. ab- about that record. If you could, just as far as the writing and the recording, just touch on Wild America a little bit. Yeah, man. It was just such a crazy experience. One one thing I would like to say, man, we're so proud of those records, man. That Surprise Attack record and Wild America because of the producers we worked with. Paul Ebersole and Joe Hardy did Surprise Attack. And then when we worked on Wild America, there was a guy named John Hampton. Uh, and John and Joe and Paul and all those guys, they were kind of like mad scientists, man. They were like, we couldn't believe it. We were kind of like right. a little rock band and we would go in and record with them and then we would come in when they were mixing and stuff and go oh my god this sounds amazing you know is this us this sounds killer (laughs) Um, but we were so happy man i think wild america for us was just we grew up so much man the the first record um we were kind of in the middle of the process and it was just kind of happening and that's why you know joe and them were so great man they had so much experience and everything and they were really patient with us teaching us you know about the recording process and all that stuff and we worked on that record for about a year and then man we had never toured we had we grew up in memphis we we got signed out of memphis we had never toured so when that record came out that was our first experience i mean that's where the wild america you know concept right. came from we just said holy crap there's this whole big world out here that we're just to go, you know, have a party with. And, uh, and we just, uh, we grew up, man, as players, like everybody, man, John and, and Patrick, man, our rhythm section, they got so tight. I mean, we were playing maybe like 11 nights in a row and then we take a night off or something. I mean, we were really busy. We really, and we had played for about two years off that first record. So it was a long, uh, life, you know, that I think we did three singles and we kept writing, and writing and and touring for wild america and that was a different process you know we were we were out on the road we were kind of you know scribbling things on napkins and and putting things in little mini recorders and all that kind of stuff and coming back and kind of piecing things together and when we got back we had just grown up i think we everybody and i don't mean this in like a like an ego way or, or anything, but we had just become more confident in our abilities, you know, like as a singer and, and Keith is a guitar player and John on drums and Patrick, everybody just said, man, God, we've like played so much and we've grown up so much. Um, it just felt like a kind of a natural progression. And then working with Hampton was just incredible, man. We just, we had a little rehearsal studio. It was about um, <laughs> a block and a half from Ardent. 
and it was an old jingle studio. It was like a two-story building. It even still had the like two-inch glass and the A, B, and gotcha, uh, gotcha studios. And so we took, we would go over to Ardent and and knock on the door and ring the bell and go in and we'd get like mic cables and microphones and and borrow them from the studio and go over to our rehearsal place. And we we did a lot of demos and stuff in there with Hampton. And he just man had such a big influence on that record. I mean, the songs like As Time Goes By, that it wasn't a single, but... That's that my favorite. That's my out. favorite. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's well, that absolutely song, my favorite. It started out because Hampton brought a keyboard over to the to the rehearsal room, and the beginning of that song was it was going to be a, a, a piano song, you know, a, a keyboard song. And then as we started working on it and stuff in the uh, guitar parts... Um, we realized, we said, hey, man, we, we're going to take the keyboards out. I mean, we still kept like B3 or something on it, but the piano part kind of had gone away and Keith, Keith's guitar parts, I mean, they started building things and coming up. But I think that's what it was. Hampton was a musician. He was a kick-ass drummer. I mean, he was badass. And he would come in and just jam with us and he would bring stuff over. We were always experimenting, trying different microphones. And I think that was that. It was the culture of, of Ardent is they were all about experimenting and, and educating yourself and trying out, you know, right. they were about new technology. And so we were always trying weird stuff, you know, it was the stuff that you like, you know, thought about when you were sitting in your room and stuff, you were like, man, I just want to like experiment. I like just want to, you know, what does this do? And what does it sound like? And what is this going to be? And he kind of still had that, but he was a producer too. He was a musician and a producer at the same time. So he brought it like a little bit different vibe. And of course, John, our drummer, loved working with him because they were like hitting it off all the time. And he was just a great friend of us. And a- actually, man, he was um, he was such a huge influence on us. He and John Fry actually passed away within a week of each other. So it was a big blow to our band. We lost two of our, you know, mm. our mentors. But we still think about him all the time. We still love him. The music that we made with him is here and it's alive and, and we're still so proud of it. So that resonates a lot with us. And I do think that record, and I, I know this sounds weird. I don't mean it in a in a weird way, but it, it is. I like that one probably out of uh, of our stuff from that era or wow. whatever. It wow. Just, right on. No, it's good. cool. You can just, but like I said, man, the growth and the progression, you can just, you can tell in those first few notes, just how different this was going to be. It was going to be a different it, ride, you know? It was so cool. That that surprise attack record, we went on some tours that were crazy, man. We went out with like L.A. Guns and Dangerous Toys, and we toured with Bonham and the Cult. And we started out in like a little 15-passenger van. You know, it, it, right. we, it was four guys in the band, and we took three of our best friends, our crew guys. So there were seven of us in this little 15-passenger van, and we were like a little group of Vikings, man. We just got on the highway <laughs> and took off. And we ended up, man, riding around in buses, playing, and we played our hometown Coliseum where we saw all of the bands play, you know, Van Halen, ACDC, and all that. We were standing on the stage wow. looking out, and oh my God, at Soundcheck going, this is it, man. I mean, this is what it looks like. <laughs> we couldn't believe it. And I just remember when we opened for the cult, the first place we played was in Houston, Texas. It was at the, the Summit, I think. And uh, we walked out on stage, and I just remember the lights went down, and I like looked out and the spotlight came on and I was like, oh, my God, I want to do this forever. I mean, I could hear the crowd, you know, it uh. was still kind of they were filtering in kind of like you could see the doorways. They kind of looked like little ants because people were coming in from the parking lot. You know, they were there to see the call. But 
it when the lights went down and the people started yelling, I mean, right. it just like a feeling like, you know, it, when I keep saying it was like out of a movie, it really felt like that. You're looking around just going, oh, my God, this is like awesome. You know, Anthony, I just I, I want I want to talk about the new single. But before we even get to that real quick, I mean, I want to talk about some of these recent releases because the unplugged yep. from from last year, that version of Phantom Rider is just amazing. But what what oh. got me hooked back in, Anthony, I'll be honest with you, was the year before that. When I saw that blue Tora Tora album at the record store, Bastards of Beale, oh, yeah. and and yeah. Son of a Prodigal Son, I mean that's just that's a staple here in, in the garage with me and my buddies, and it's oh, just man. those last two releases. It's just it's kind of got me fired up again, man. Man, listen, we loved it. We were so excited. Uh, we worked with Frontier Records on Bastards of Beale. We recorded the whole record at Sam Phillips Studio in. Um, Memphis, and if your listeners aren't familiar with Sam Phillips, he's the guy that found like Howlin' Wolf and Johnny Cash and a guy named Elvis Presley. So <laughs> that was his studio. He sold son, yeah. He sold son out to RCA, and he moved right down the street on the same block. He bought a, an auto body shop and gutted it. And this was back in the '60s, and he built the studio. And man, I'm not kidding. It looks like he would walk in there any second. It's still decorated exactly. Right? The same way. It's so awesome. And some of my biggest influences one of mine is robert plant and so he had recorded there and i was so excited i was like oh my god i want to be standing in the room where you know robert right, plant was right. in and i just thought it was so cool but we had a great experience we had a friend of ours jeff powell produced that record he had worked on wild america he was an assistant engineer back then and now he works at sun so he was kind of like an extended family member so that whole experience was amazing and uh, really quickly on that i know we got to move on but we cut that record pretty live. I mean, we went in and it was kind of like we counted the song off. And the first song on the album is um, Sons of Zebedee. That was the first song in the recording. Yeah, so yeah. we walked in and we laughed because it was a couple of clicks faster on the recording than we had rehearsed it. But when we heard it, we were like, man, it's the energy. Let's just leave it how it is. It feels good. It feels like us. And uh, it was pretty raw, and we did that intentionally. We we were kind of excited. We didn't know what it was going to sound like. Man, we hadn't recorded new music in so long. We were kind of nervous, and we were thinking what everybody else was thinking. Like, what is it going to be, man? What's it going to sound like? But when we got in and started doing the rehearsals, we just – it's something about the four of us when we're in there together. That's the sound, you know? And we That's just so said, cool. we didn't we didn't go back and, and visit any old music. We we literally walked in with a blank sheet of paper and we stuck an old piece of poster board on the wall like we used to when we were little kids and we put in our fake titles, right. you know, for our songs and we just went to work. And man, for that whole year, 2018, we worked on it. It came out in uh, February of 2019. And, uh, you know, we were just indebted to Frontiers. They gave us a platform to their audience, you know, a way to connect. And we had gone out and done a couple of those Monsters of Rock, uh, uh, the cruise. The cruises, yeah. yeah. I had buddies that saw you guys on there. Yeah, right. it was awesome. And so we kind of connected with our with our group of people, our tribe, you know, on there. And, uh, and that kind of lit a fire under us. And so Frontiers happened to come along. That was a really special project. It was really cool. And it was a snapshot kind of – we were really limited on time and on our budget and all that kind of stuff. So we just said, hey – we're going to do tons of pre-production and we'll just go in and we're just going to count this thing off and go and knock it out. And, uh, so that was killer. And then the, uh, the unplugged album is, um, 
it was recorded at a place called Lafayette in Midtown in Memphis. It was a really small venue. We'd never done anything like that where we did acoustic. Keith, our guitar player, likes to be on 10 through his Marshall. So we, you know, kind of talked to him. We said, hey, let's really try to do this. Let's do a deep dive and find some songs that we, you know, normally don't play a lot. And we'll throw in some of the old favorites. And, it, man, it just turned into being this really special night. We had a friend of ours, uh, Jim Green. He was a promoter in Memphis um, that we grew up with, and he kind of came up with the idea. He said, would you, we normally did a, a, a show or two with him every year, and he said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And, he, and it was his idea to do the recording. He said, I want you to record the show. He goes, it's going to be in a little small venue. He goes, you should do this. We should set it up where you're going to record. And, uh, you know, he's the reason that got that got recorded and it, and that it came out. I mean, uh, to this day, um, we we actually lost Jim last year, and uh, we loved him. We grew up together and did a bunch of shows with him, had a lot of great times. But we we still think about him all the time, and that record is you know kind of dedicated to him. Man, it, it was a really cool night. It was really special. And man, what was so funny? We were talking earlier about the warehouse and all that stuff. A lot of those people that were at that show were those people that were back at the warehouse all those years ago. They Isn't were that something. Oh, that's it was so cool. It was awesome, man. It was really killer. It, the uh, the new single "Trip the Light" fantastic. What a jam, Anthony. And by the time when this when this when this airs, this is going to drop on Friday. I record these on Wednesdays and I and I yes. drop them on Friday, so it's going to be available everywhere, right? As far as on the digital yes, platforms. Man. It's available on all digital platforms. Uh, you guys can look us up on our social media, man. It's us on there talking to you on Facebook and Instagram, uh, Twitter. Uh, go to tourtourmusic.com, and if you want to uh, get any information on us, that's our website where you can find out uh, about merch and, and upcoming shows and all that kind of stuff. So we love hearing from you guys. We love uh, you know hearing where you're, where you're listening from. Yeah. We want to know where you guys are checking us out. But, man, yeah, this song – we were very excited. We went in the studio back day. Uh, it was the first time that all of us had been together since February of 2020. So that was a really special time. Uh, we went to a studio called uh, Young Avenue that's uh, in Memphis. Uh, it was a great experience. We cut about 11 or 12 tracks, and uh, we were doing basic tracks, so just getting drums and, and bass on those visits. But... Um, it was fun, man. I went in. It was around my birthday, so it was kind of like a birthday celebration. The band was back together. And, man, before they could even mic anything up, we drug our stuff in the room <laughs> and pulled in like a monitor and plugged a mic in and just wanted to jam, man. We just wanted to see each other. It had been like a, oh. you know, a year and a half almost since we had played. So we were thrilled to be in there. And, uh, man, we were so excited about these songs. We've got some really, really cool ideas uh, that we're working on. And I think what we're going to do is let out um, a single at a time right now. Some bands uh, are doing that. I see I, a lot of bands are doing that, Anthony. I saw Tesla. That's their kind of their game plan is to focus in on a song, hone it down, yeah. and release it single by single, and then maybe do the album later down, yeah. right? Is that yeah. what you guys are thinking? I do think so. I think we'll end up doing something kind of special for the the, uh, the audience and the fans, you know, a collection of them together, whether it's an EP or a full project. But we wanted to uh, go in and get the basic tracks. John is was a big consideration for us this time because we did the last one so fast. We were like, man, let's you know, let's put the brakes on a little bit and give him some time in the studio. We had we had actually had the recording time back in 2020 when we were going to go in, and then with the pandemic, yeah. we were like everybody else. You know, we, we looked at each other. I remember, man, like in March, we said, 
uh, hey, let's just push this back, you know, until May, and I'll just see you guys in a couple weeks when this thing blows over. And, you know, by the time we got to May, it was full-blown. Yeah. Everybody was in a different mind, you know, mindset. But anyway, the studio was sitting there, and we said, hey, why don't we just give John the luxury of going in, and we, we're not trying to just kill him with 12 tracks or while we're in for the few days we're in. Let's just go in and have fun. And, I mean, he did such a great job. Uh, he went in and had a ball. He got to, you know, mess around with his, his uh, drum sounds and changing his snares and all that kind of right, stuff playing right, right. around the studio. So it's really creative for him and fun. And so we just said, hey, you know, we'll work on a couple of them at a time. Uh, we'll set this one up. But the, the trip to Light Fantastic was one that uh, Keith and I were talking about, and we just got excited about it. It's kind of about all of us getting through uh, this pandemic thing together, man. We started thinking about how bad we miss everybody and what a celebration it's going to be and just coming, kind of walking through the fire together and coming back and getting together. And it's, you know, it's, we're hopeful, man. We know right. uh, there's been these, these spikes and stuff that are going on, but hopefully uh, it looks like we'll be able to get back out and get together soon, man, with the vaccines going around and all that stuff. Hopefully, you know, everybody's, uh, you know, welcome to have their own perspective and uh, their own personal opinions about all that stuff. But hopefully we're all going to be getting together soon, man. And this song was just something that we wanted to send out to kind of encourage everybody. Tora Tora's new single, Trip the Light Fantastic, that's available on all digital platforms, especially right now, because that's when this uh, this podcast is dropping. So it's out there. Check it out. Uh, Anthony Quarter, it's been an honor, brother. Appreciate you taking uh, the time, my man. Man, thank you so much for having me and giving me a, a, a voice to your audience, man. We can't do it without people like you. So I really appreciate it, man. The, the band and I are super stoked and we can't wait to see everybody out on the road soon, man. You guys just uh, stay in touch. Keep checking on each other. Uh, you know, we all need each other right now. Everybody's going through really crazy times with health stuff and finances and all kind of things. So, uh, But we can do it together. So you guys just uh, keep rocking out there, and hopefully we're going to see you out on the road real soon. There you have it. Such a cool dude. Anthony Quarter of Tora Tora. Be sure to check out their new single, Trip the Light Fantastic. Uh, here is what is on the horizon for Garage Days. Next episode, September 10th. Good friend of the show, Mike Austin, a.k.a. Beasley. He's the tour manager for Enough's Enough. He's going to be in the Hawks Nest, and we're going to try and get some stories uh, from the road, especially this past summer's uh, tour, which had Enough's Enough and Faster Pussycat. They called that the straight-out-of-quarantine tour. Uh, his his what I did for summer break story is probably just going to be a little bit better than ours. <laughs> then on September 17th, Ricky Wolf, owner of the King of Clubs, that's right, going to be in the garage. Just an amazing venue. Can't wait to have uh, Ricky on the show. Then let's let's jump to October 29th. That's going to be the flight out of Ohio party for Flight Pattern Bob. Everyone's favorite snowbird is going to be heading to Florida for the winter. So we'll have a we'll have a party here in the Hawks Nest for Flight Pattern Bob. Uh, invite some friends of the show over. Can can we still ask Bob to be the bartender if if the party is for him? We'll have to figure that out. Until the next episode, stay frosty. I'll have to check that out.